grace and mercy and peace to you from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the Holy Spirit. Amen. You might not know this, but my dad is famous. He's achieved a number of distinctions in engineering and business, but none of that is why he's famous among his fishing buddies and family. Dad is known as one match Middlestat. He can get a campfire going with one match. Now, even an average woodsman can do this when the wood is dry. You know, when the wood is really dry, it practically catches on fire uh, just by being warm in the sun. Not, not really, of course, but dry wood really catches on fire easily. But to be one match middle stat, you have to be able to start a fire at your campsite in the woods after a day and a night of rain with green logs using only one match. It can't be done, you say. There is a man who can do it, and has done it for years, and he has the title of greatness. Now, I don't have that title. My title is son of one match middle stat. <laughs> and at our house, we've got a fireplace, and I do make a lot of fires, and I split my own wood. In fact, the Boy Scout leader recently out here in the driveway, he asked me uh, if I wanted to borrow his log splitter. I've got a log splitter, I told him. Right there, right there. <laughs> but here's my point. <laughs> As the son of one match middle stat, I am very cognizant of the difference between green wood and dry wood. Green wood has only recently been cut down. That's what it's about. And because it's just recently been cut down, all kinds of moisture, water, uh, that was giving life to the tree is now still in the wood. If you throw a green log on the fire, it will actually froth and boil at both ends. Yeah, you see this? It sounds like it's sizzling. You look at all this, it's boiling. It's all froth and, and steam comes out. It is, in fact, very hard to burn. But a dry log, on the other hand, practically ignites. When it's in the log holder, you've got to make sure a spark doesn't land on it. It burns quickly and thoroughly without any special effort required. The contrast between green and dry wood supplied Jesus with one of his darkest sayings. But if we find our way to the heart of what he said, we will learn a lot about what he thought the cross was all about. If they do these things, he said, when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? Let's get at this first by talking about who Jesus was not, was not. Being marched by Roman soldiers to suffer a Roman execution, specifically the most horrible way they had for doing that, crucifixion, you would presume that Jesus was a brigand, you know, some kind of a rebel against the state. But he was not. Now at that time, there were plenty, actually large numbers, of uh, Jewish rebels against the Roman state. The party of zealots, they were called, for example. They undertook vicious guerrilla attacks on Roman personnel when they could, and they planned large, violent overthrows. But Jesus was not one of them. He was not dry wood, meaning there, he was not ready to be set alight. He wasn't wood primed to be seized by the Romans and destroyed, executed. 
That's, that, that's, the, that's, the, that's the sense of dry wood. It's, it's ready to burn, ready to be executed, ready to be done away with. That was not Jesus. And, and as a matter of fact, in chapters before the one we read, this, or the section we had tonight, Jesus had warned, specifically warned the Israelites that all their political agitating and their growing preference and their underground preparations for armed rebellion against Rome, all that, he warned them, was going to end in disaster. It was turning them into a virtual California hillside in a drought, as it were. You know, a dried-out forest just waiting for the exasperated, powerful Romans to put the match to it. Jesus, the preacher, the prophet, had told Israel that God was not in their militaristic plans and ambitions. He, has, he had actually prophesied at some length that unless Israel, and particularly the city of Jerusalem, turned from their rebel madness and followed him, followed the Christ, the Messiah, in his alternate peaceful way of being the people of God, he warned them that Rome would finally destroy Jerusalem, throwing to the ground every one of its stones. That's how Jesus put it. There would be shocking loss of human life. Jesus, just a week previous on Palm Sunday to, when he, to where all this is going on here, had, had wept over Jerusalem as he came into it. Follow me and do not bring this disaster on yourselves. For Jesus himself was not dry wood. He was not timber ready for burning. On the contrary, he was green wood, full of moisture, full of life-giving water. Jesus' mission was about life and peace and repentance. It was about God's, not war, but God's reconciling kingdom, reconciling kingdom, coming for Israel and for the nations. He was no sword bearer. He was greenwood. And yet here he was, handed over by the leaders of Jerusalem and about to suffer Roman crucifixion. So what Jesus is saying in verse 31 is, if they are even doing this to him, greenwood, what will the Romans do when Jerusalem is filled with young hotheads? Jewish firebrands eager to do anything they can to incite and create violence and mayhem. If the Romans crucify the Prince of Peace, what are they going to do with genuine warlords? Well, actually, a bit of an aside here, history reports to us what happened. In 66 AD, Jewish rebels and armed zealots uh, took control of the city of Jerusalem. And they instituted a kind of reign of terror. They were a really terrible bunch of people. And in 70 AD, a huge Roman army showed up outside the city, commanded by General Titus. You don't mess with Romans. They utterly destroyed Jerusalem and its temple, exactly as Jesus said, with horrifying loss of life, tens of thousands of people. What Jesus prophesied back in 33 AD occurred within a generation. But let's get back to Jesus on the way to the cross. He knew, he knew that he's dying the death of a brigand, the death of a violent revolutionary, though he's no such thing. That is part of the point. He is bearing in himself 
the fate that he had predicted for the warlike nation. The woes that he had pronounced on Jerusalem and inhabitants were coming true in him. One was bearing the sins of the many. He was doing it for them. However, if the many, that's the majority of the population, refuse even now to turn and follow the Messiah, to repent of their violence, then the fate in store for them, as I just described to you in 70 AD, will make Jesus' crucifixion seem mild by comparison. The judgment that Rome will mete out on them will be so severe that the people will beg the mountains to fall on them and the hills to cover them. We saw those words in there. He says, that's how bad it'll be. He's warning them. So turn from that route and follow me, he says. Jesus is not a rebel brigand. Who is he? He's the king of Israel. Think about this. What, what does a true king do for his country, for his people? Does a true king exploit the nation, lining his own pockets, benefiting himself and his rich, corrupt cronies, living at ease, not really caring what happens to his people? Unfortunately, many corrupt kings and sinful politicians have ruled exactly that way. But not Jesus. He is the king who, in order to secure the eternal well-being of his people, out of love for them, laid down his own life for them on the cross. He died for them. What a king! The king dies for the people. And by the way, there was still plenty of time, three decades after Jesus' death and resurrection, before 70 AD came along. Plenty of time for the city to come to faith in him as the Messiah and king. And many did. In fact, when they saw the Romans coming, as prophesied by Jesus, his people fled the city before the zealots locked the gates and wouldn't let anybody leave. But the followers of Jesus escaped en masse the destruction of Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is the greatest king who guides his people and who serves them, even laying down his life. But in this section from the Gospel of Luke, we see him being mocked. Mocked for being what he is, the king of the Jews. So many were scoffing and were incredulous that he, this man, could be the king. He, this man, he had stood on its head the meaning of kingship. Even, even, he even stood on its head the accepted meaning of kingdom. Because Jesus had celebrated with the wrong people. The poor and the lowly. What kind of a king does that? He had offered peace and hope to the wrong people, to outcasts and to sinners. And he had warned the wrong people of God's coming judgment, the powerful of the city. Now, here in Luke 23, he is at last hailed as king, but in mockery. Here comes, here comes the royal cupbearer, except that it's a Roman soldier offering the sour wine that the poor people drink. And here is his royal placard announcing his kingship to the world, except that it is in fact a criminal charge intended to explain his cruel death. Jesus, the king of the Jews. His true royalty, though, does shine out. It shines out in his prayer. Unlike traditional martyrs who went to their deaths usually cursing their torturers for what they're doing, 
Unlike them, Jesus prays. He prays for their forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then, like a king on his way to enthronement, he receives the request of a man who entreats him and promises him a place of honor and of bliss. That conversation with that man, striking moment of intimacy. I mean, between Jesus and that repentant criminal. And crucifixions were not known for their intimacy. Instead, they were notorious for their cruelty. One of the purposes of a public crucifixion was to dehumanize the person being crucified, to to strip them of honor and make them an object of scorn. Crucifixion turned people into things. But to Jesus, no person under any circumstances is ever a thing. And he has this amazing moment of intimacy with the thief on the cross. What happened? Well, first, first that criminal makes a confession of sin. He admits that he is crucified justly. His death is deserved because of his misdeeds. And then he makes a confession of faith. Jesus has done nothing wrong. His death is not deserved, and he will be vindicated. The criminal foresees a day when Jesus will come into his kingdom. Having heard a moment before Jesus pray for God to forgive those who knew not what they do, this criminal prays that Jesus will forgive someone who does know what he did. He throws his hopes on Jesus entirely and prays, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. To this prayer of a dying man, Jesus responds with a promise. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Such care stands out at a public execution. It is extraordinary because it is strange. But it also stands out because it's true. In this one small moment of intimacy between those men, we see truth in the midst of mockery. We see a true sinner meeting his true savior and king. The mockers and scoffers have cried out for Jesus to save himself if he's the Christ and king. In truth, though, Jesus came not to save himself, but to save others. He came to save you. Jesus is the king the King of kings and the Lord of lords. A question then to be clear on is, how is it, if he's king, that he reigns among us? Some would answer like this. They'd say, well, in spite of the fact that he died on a cross, he's actually very powerful and can do all sorts of powerful and very glorious things. Such a view of Jesus looks for his reign exclusively in things that are powerful and glorious. Like political power, you know? The right political party getting elected and holding power. When that happens, so does thought, that's got to be the reign of God. Or it looks for and sees Christ's reign in, in good people, becoming prosperous and glorious and so on, and bad people experiencing misfortune, serves them right, et cetera. I'm saying that 
and in spite of the cross, understanding of Christ's reign, sees him doing his kingly thing only in powerful and glorious happenings. The truth is, however, that all that entirely fails to understand the kingship of Jesus and how he actually reigns. Our Savior rules not in spite of the cross, but through it, through it. I mean, do you know why Jesus didn't call down a bolt of lightning on the Roman soldiers who were marching him off to Golgotha? Have you ever wondered about that? Or why he did not suddenly and dramatically get down off the cross when he was taunted to do so? He would not free himself from the cross because it's by the cross that he frees others. And he still does. He continues to do so. And you will not know the reign of Christ in your heart, in your life, until you see yourself like that thief and see Jesus dying for you on the cross as the only way that you can be saved. Nine times out of ten, the powerful, the influential, and the popular, beautiful, and really healthy are thoroughly preoccupied. I say nine times out of ten with their own kingdom, with their own reign, and their own glory on earth. Meanwhile, it's among the despised that Jesus comes and reigns. He gathers the marginalized and the mocked, the disabled and the disenfranchised, the hopeless and humiliated, the suffering and the sinner. These are the ones that Jesus saves. And so tonight, God calls us to serve this King, to serve this Jesus. God invites us to ourselves have intimate conversations with him amidst a world filled with mockery and hate and to trust that Jesus reigns whenever and wherever he extends a word of promise to the guilty, the displaced, and the disfavored, welcoming them home. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus for life everlasting. Amen.